Okay, everybody, good evening. Okay, I think I have all my systems on and all my windows open. I think I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you and welcome to our third class session for uh, uh, the, our Boethius class, our Mythgard Academy uh, class on the Constellation of Philosophy. Uh, I am joining you, as you can see, not from home. Uh, I'm from, I'm close my closet door so you can see the glamorous uh, wall behind me over there. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm not at home, as you can see. I'm uh, nor, but nor am I in prison, as it sort of looks like. Um, I am, uh, I am in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is nothing like prison. Uh, this room might look a little uh, uninteresting from the inside. It's not very thoroughly decorated, uh, but I'm in a very comfortable apartment here at Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I'm happy to be again. I've, as uh, uh, those of you who have been with me for a while may recognize this gray room uh, that I am broadcasting from as I have broadcasted fr from it annually for the last four years now. Um, no, it's not an undisclosed secure location, Tony, though it kind of looks like that, too. Um, anyway, yeah, so uh, so glad you could join me. I The main thing I apologize for is the lighting, which is fairly poor. All I have is one quite weak overhead light here uh, and uh, am relying otherwise on the glow of screens on my face, which is always somewhat eerie lighting, But um, but there we are. So, okay. Um, also, another thing I'm going to apologize for, especially for those of you who are on Twitch, I am. I did manage to, um, uh, to broadcast on Twitch again. But, my, of course, I can only broadcast on Twitch on my phone because that's how it works. And uh, um, my phone is balanced incredibly precariously <laughs> back there behind my, uh, behind my screen. Uh, and I, there's like... A very, very small chance that I am not going to end up gesticulating and knocking it over at some point <laughs> during the class here tonight. So uh, if you're watching on Twitch and all of a sudden the world goes uh, crazy and large clanking sounds are heard, that would be why. Um, all right. Um, so uh, let's um, uh, let's 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 get going. First of all, <clears throat> quick announcement. Um, uh, I am so the next two weeks are going to be kind of tricky, but I believe I'll be able to make. Of course, if you were with me last night in exploring the Lord of the Rings, I said I'm not going to be available for the last two weeks. Uh, that is true, but uh, uh, fortunately, I am much more. Um, the uh, 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 Lady Fortune is is much more kind uh, to me on Wednesdays the next two weeks than on Thursdays. I actually should be able to make both of the next two Wednesdays. Uh, um, so we'll hope for the best uh, for there, and that will all work out fine. But we'll see. So, uh, so, so I am just just in case you were wondering if you were there last night and heard about me being away for two weeks, two Tuesdays, sadly for different reasons. But uh, but the Wednesday should be all right. Um, also, I just wanted to, to sort of share with you my own excitement. About, I've told you before about our Hobbit immersion camp. Um, this uh, summer program that we're doing for middle school kids from July 10th, the weeks the weeks of July 10th and 17th. It's a two-week camp where we're going to read the entire Hobbit and uh, uh, and talk about it. And there's going to be awesome, fun uh, discussions and activities and stuff. We're partnering with local libraries um, so that we have um, 
uh, we'll have we'll have local chapters all over the country, and we have uh, uh, we we have a couple in Canada uh, now. We just got a couple Canadian ones yesterday, uh, so that's going to be fun. Uh, still looking for our first uh, our first European or Asian uh, Hobbit uh, uh, camp chapters. Um, anyway, it's going to be great fun. Um, but we've been uh, uh, we've been getting some wonderful. Um, uh, some 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 wonderful uh, uh, subscriptions lately. We're 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 start, we're, we're pushing fifty uh, libraries now, fifty chapters between libraries and uh, homeschool groups and things. Um, so we're gonna we're 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 on pace to have several hundred middle school kids joining us <clears throat> for our Hobbit camp. Um, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be great fun. There's still plenty of time to to join, but I just wanted to encourage you to spread the word. You can tell your librarians that there are dozens and dozens of libraries across the country working with us on this, uh, and uh, everybody's uh, ready to have a really good time. So uh, I'm excited to be spreading the the Hobbit love uh, among the next generation, uh, and it's gonna be it's gonna be and Takako absolutely Japan. I'd love to see a Japanese chapter. That would be great. Um, Tomas, we don't have a list of the libraries uh, 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 online yet, but we we will. We should. That's a great idea. Um, we haven't uh, gotten as far as that. Um, we've been mostly focused on, on communicating with the libraries themselves and getting everything set up. But we we, we will totally we'll totally do that. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be great fun. Um, uh, we're huge in Montana. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not even joking. We have like seven public libraries in the state of Montana, uh, which are going to be doing the Hobbit Immersion Camp with us this uh, 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 this 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 summer. And uh, we have um, uh, we we're just hearing from one library today. This tiny little library uh, in rural Mississippi, in a town so small they don't even have their own public schools. Uh, and they're going to do the Hobbit Immersion Camp with us. So I think it's, uh, it's just great. I'm, I'm so excited. Anyway, okay. So just to, just to kind of remind you about that, we're really, we're really building some great momentum uh, with, uh, with our Hobbit program this summer and, uh, and really looking forward to that. But all right, let's get on uh, to Boethius here. Um, so um, uh, tonight's class is called Looking for Happiness in All the Wrong Places, right? As we're going to be... Um, looking at uh, Lady Philosophy's continuing analysis of the gifts of fortune, right? We were uh, we sort of ended off in the middle of that when she went through and showed how all the gifts of fortune, you know, um, thing the things like like uh, happiness and or you know, you know like uh, uh, wealth and power and honors, that is to say, titles and uh, uh, fame and all those kinds of things aren't really worth all that much on their own. Um, but first, before we get back into that, I want to do another segment of Lingering on the Latin uh, with Tom Hillman. Uh, Tom, for us today, has some great stuff on the poetry, uh, and in particular to uh, introduce you to some of the stuff that, uh, uh, that, that, that he's doing, some more stuff that he's doing with the poetry. Uh, Tom says, I'm going to dally for a moment more on the first poem of the book, turning back to the first four lines of the poem and its form, because the form is significant. Anyone educated in Latin would have recognized it at once. Carmina qui quondam studio florente peregi, flebilis heu maestos cogor enire modos, eke mihi lacerae dictant scribenda camenae, et, et veris eligi fletibus ora rigant. In green, these lines run from I who through real tears, but here's my attempt, which is not metrical, but matches lines and tries to be more literal. 
I highlight some words to note contrasts not quite clear in Green's translation. I who once finished poems with a gay zeal am now compelled in tears to begin melancholy meters. See, wounded muses tell me what to write, and my cheeks grow stiff with the true tears of elegy. That last line has a wonderful image that takes a moment. Why do the cheeks grow stiff with tears? Because of the salt that's left behind as tears dry. Note that the tears are now true or real, which suggests that the tears in the poems he had written before were not. For now he's got a reason to cry. Right? Lots of uh, poets write sad, uh, sad, sad lines, write sad poems, when they don't actually have all that much reason to be sad. Um, and now he does. Now notice the, 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 the highlighting that Tom did. Notice the parallelism there in the first two lines, right? Um, you know, from uh, the, the, with the, 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 the verbs shifting, right? I who once finished poems, and he's now beginning melancholy meters. Um, it was with a gay zeal, and now it was the gay and the melancholy. Um, uh, with a, you know, so talk about his, his zeal, his own enthusiasm for the poems, right? For his writing before, and now he's compelled. Uh, and even as simple as the once and now, uh, you know, right from Quondam de Heu there. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, we can see, because and, and, you'll remember that poem was all about those contrasts, right? Remember from, from summer to winter, from youth to old age, remember all that stuff from how he was totally happy to now he's completely miserable. Um, so Tom is sort of showing you the intricacy of how he's, how he's done that, right, through his meter, which is pretty cool. Um, but, uh, but wait, there's more. Um, He's also, he, uh, Boethius, is also making something like a sort of a larger poetic joke through the meter of his poem. Now, when Boethius speaks of melancholy meters, maestos modos, and elegy, elegy, he isn't speaking metaphorically. In Greek and Latin, elegiac verse had a specific form, what we call an elegiac couplet. This is what we see here. The first line is a standard line of dactylic hexameter, six feet, mixing of dactyls and spondees, like so. Carmina qui quondam studio florente peregi. The second line is a bit geekier to explain. It's often called a dactylic pentameter, but it's more like a pair of two and a half dactylic feet. The caesura falls precisely in the middle, and that's the easy explanation. The hard explanation is that it's two dactylic trimeters catalectic. Say what? Never mind. So, flebilis heu maestos, cogor inire modos. It's hard to convey the difference between Latin and English meters, since Latin meter is not based on stress. This is something that we have a really hard... I mean, you'll notice I'm still kind of stressing the lines, because I can't help it, right? Because I'm used to English poetry. But that's not, uh, you know... So when we think of how poetry scans, we think about the rhythm of the stressed and unstressed syllables. But as Tom says, that's not how Latin poetry works. Latin poetry works um, with sets of, of long and short vowels, which isn't the same. It's kind of correlated with stress, but it's not the same thing as stress. Um, anyway, a rare example of English dactylic hexameter is Longfellow's Evangeline, which gives a good idea of the feel of the dactylic lines. This is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks bearded with moss, and in garments green, indistinct in the twilight. Stand like druids of eld, with voices sad and prophetic. Stand like harpers whore, with beards that rest on their bosoms. So you hear how it's, it's not regular in terms of number of syllables, right? It's, it's not a purely syllabic meter. 
Um, but did you hear the cesura in the middle, right? That pause in the middle and the, the, the you know, and you could kind of feel the rhythm of it, right? Even though it's not a regular every syllable counted kind of kind of meter. Um, so uh, anyway, the point is, um, the, you know, the, the larger point here, he's used, so the poetic mode that Boethius is using in that first poem is elegiac couplet. That is, it's the, it's, it is the melancholy meter that he talks about is, is the, the, the specific poetic form uh, that he's using there, which, as Tom said, everybody, every, every Latin reader would have immediately recognized what sort of genre and therefore what kind of attitude in that sense uh, of poem this was. And he's drawing attention to it, right? So there's something like... There's something that reminds me somewhat perversely of Tom Bombadil singing about the color of his own clothing, right? Except instead of, except it's like the opposite, right? Uh, instead of being totally careful, he's writing an elegiac poem about the fact that he's now writing an elegiac poem, right? Um, he's, there's a sense in which his emphasis on his own uh, sorrow or uh, is all not exactly that it's redundant, um, but it's not nece- and it's certainly not necessary for him to talk about how like I am now writing sad poetry. Like it's obvious that he's writing sad poetry, right? He's writing it in sad poetry meter. Um, but uh, uh, but again, we, I think you know we can see um, we can see the uh, the the. It seems to me that that really kind of seems to fit with the sort of pattern of self-absorption that we see in. Uh, Boethius there, especially at the very beginning, really throughout book one, what Lady Philosophy is trying to, to th- that loop that she's trying to get him out of, right? As he's entirely focused on his own misery. Like, I'm going to write elegy, I'm going to write in elegiac meter a poem about me writing elegy because I'm so miserable, right? I'm just, it's like, it's, it's me, 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 my own, so I am completely wrapped up within my own sorrow. Uh, and exactly, it's like recursive poetry, Jennifer. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's that's pretty cool. Uh, uh, Tom, Rachel Draper was wondering, uh, where's the easiest way to get a copy of the Latin? Is it available on the internet, um, or uh, or do you have to get? I mean, I know like it's available in like a a, a nice uh, Loeb Library edition, I believe. But is is it available in the library anywhere, or on the internet anywhere rather? Anyway, thanks as always to Tom for his uh, his wonderful insights uh, into the Latin. Um, yeah, cool. All right. Uh, so let's. Uh, okay, before we uh, before we move on, I want to I'll, I'll start with a little summary. I don't usually like to like go back and summarize all of what I did last time, but I want to make sure that we that we keep the thread right. Uh, you know, Boethius's thread. Um, so okay. Um, when he starts out, right? Um, but we, Lady Philosophy set out, you know, last in, in, in our second class, Lady Philosophy set out to shake some of Boethius's certainties, right? That's the fir- her first response to how miserable, you know, he says he is, is, you know, she says to him, um, things aren't as clear as you think they are, right? And think about the things that I, you know, that I mentioned last time. He starts off saying, I used to be happy, right? And over the course of our class last time, we watched as Lady Philosophy said, 
Uh, no, you weren't actually happy, right? At least your happiness did not lie in what you're thinking it did, right? So you think you were happy. No, you were blessed temporarily by the goods of fortune, right? Fortune was smiling on you for a while and you had all the good things, right? All the temporal good things. But those things are temporary and fleeting by their natures, right? So no, you weren't happy. You were just sort of pleased, blessed briefly before, right? He was saying, so I was happy, and then he was saying, and now I'm completely miserable, right? I mean, this is like what he's saying in that first poem that we were just talking about. And she says, no, you're not completely miserable, right? You just have less, right? Yeah, yeah, you have fewer of those blessings now than you had before. But you don't have none of them, right? You still have some blessings. You're still blessed compared to, to, to many other people, right? You're still happier than many people are, Um you know, many of the people, you know, there are people who call this place that you call prison home, right? You're in exile here. They, they live here, right? Um, you got to, you know, like you got to change the way you, you look at things, right? You're not, you weren't completely happy before. You're not completely miserable now. And of course, his primary complaint, I've been robbed or cheated of what was mine, right? And she says, no, you haven't. Right? It wasn't yours. It was never yours. Never really yours. You can tell because you lost it. That which is truly and securely yours cannot be taken away from you by definition. Right? And so therefore, since you've lost it, you can know it was never actually yours. Um, okay. Um, during most of the uh, the, 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 the passages that we looked at last time, she was attacking his central protest, right, uh, from, uh, from book one, which was, fortune betrayed me, right? Fortune turned on me and, and, and decided, to, to, decided just to dump on me, right? And that wasn't right for her to do that. And Lady Philosophy says, no, she didn't, right? She, she didn't betray you. Uh, she was true to her own nature. This is how she is. She didn't change her mind, right? She's constant, constant in her inconstancy, right? Constant in always shifting things around. Shifting things around is her job. She turns her wheel, right? Remember that the great image of the, the wheel of fortune, right? She turns her Ferris wheel and people go up and people go down and that's what she, she takes her goods, right? All those things that are in her gift, those things that are her stuff, um, wealth and power and uh, respect and fame and pleasure and all those things, right? And she mixes it around however she wants to. That's her job, right? And she doesn't hold still. And you can't count. It's not just that you can't count on her to stay. You can count on her not to stay. That's who she is, right? That's her job. That's her nature. She changes and turns just like other things in nature do, like the seasons and the tides and things like that. Um, if you like fortune's stuff, you have to be, you have to understand, right? You have to be willing to play the game. That's how it works. If you, if you enjoy wealth, right? If you want to go in for wealth, if that's where you want to, you know, uh, you know, if, if that's, um, if that's the place where you want to build your house, you got to recognize, right? Um, it's not going to support a house for very long, uh, of course, you'll see the metaphor that I, uh, the, this rather non-random illustration I've chosen there, right? It's kind of like building your house on the sand instead of building your house on a rock. Because if you build your house on a sand, sooner or later, 
you know, the wind is going to blow and the rain is going to come uh, and your house is going to end up getting undermined and falling over. You can depend on that, right? Um, you can only, your house can only be secure if it's built on a rock, not if it's built on the sand. Boethius doesn't use that illustration. Of course, many of you will recognize that illustration comes from the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's, uh, uh, that's, that's New Testament. That is one of many places where we can hear echoes of New Testament teaching. I said before, right, Boethius doesn't use the Bible, right? It doesn't appeal to the Bible as an authority. That's not what his argument is based on. But we can see lots of places where, his, where we kind of sort of pause in his argument and say, wait a second. I see where we've ended up, right? Um, he has, through his uh, pagan sources and his logical approach, ended up at uh, exactly the same place the Gospels end up at. That happens more than once, as we'll see. Um, so, uh, okay. Um, yeah. Oh, great. Um, hang on. Just a couple more things here. Um, so, uh, and then, of course, we ended up with looking at when, when she goes through and she actually she says, okay, let's look at fortune stuff, right? These things that are in fortune's gift. Um, are they, should they be? You know, should you be building your house on that, right? Should that be, you know, what is the real nature of those things, right? And she says, you know, they're not, not only can they be taken away, they're not so hot when you actually look at them, right? And that we looked at how you know, we went through wealth and power and honors and fame and the things that are not actually real satisfactory, about those things, according to, as I said last time, all of these very traditional teachings from traditional uh, moralists for a long time. Um, she established that they were transitory, but also kind of pointless in themselves. Kind of lame when you look at them carefully. Um, so tonight we're going to start still now towards the end of, of book two, but I want to go back a little bit and look, sort of uh, uh, dig a little deeper into her analysis of the goods of fortune and look at kind of the deeper principles that are involved um, with the goods of fortune. That is, okay, so, so they might not be, they might be kind of lame on their own when you look at them carefully, um, but, uh, but more about Lady Philosophy's argument concerning why depending on them is just out of whack, right? Why, why, that, doesn't, why that doesn't make sense. But first, uh, Rachel, Tom has a link for you. Uh, it's at Perseus, apparently. Let me see if I can post that here. Posting that on GoToWebinar chat. There we go. There's the link. Um, okay. Good. Um, and there we go. Post that on. Posting it all over the place. Okay. I think I posted it to all the places. Oh, I didn't post it to Twitter. I'll post I'll tweet it, too. There we go. Um, there we go. Tweeted. Sent it everywhere. Okay. Very good. Um, all right. Um, so deeper into the prince into uh, why dependence on the goods of fortune is uh, is not great um, this is in the section on wealth and again so we looked at how wealth doesn't deliver what it seems to offer um, but more 
uh, Lady Philosophy says, just think about what it means. You know, think about what it implies when you are valuing these physical things like gems and gold and things like that, right? What an upside-down state of affairs when a man who is divine by his gift of reason thinks his excellence depends on the possession of lifeless bric-a-brac. Other creatures are content with what they have, but you, made in the likeness of God by virtue of your reason, choose ornaments for your excellent nature from base things without understanding how great an injury you do to your creator. God wished the human race to be superior to all earthly things, but you have lowered your dignity below the level of the most trivial things. For if it is true that the good thing in which something else finds its good is more precious than the something else which counts it is good, then when you judge vile things to be your goods, you lower yourself beneath them by your own estimate, and so deservedly become so. Now that last sentence I know is a little complicated, right? But but the the overall point is really clear. If we're saying like, okay, you know, she's saying the, sort of the, the irony, but the kind of sick irony of saying like, okay, so I may be a human being whose reason is the very image of the mind of God, right? Uh, whose reason sets me uh, apart from and above all of the rest of material creation. And I'm, my reason sets me above animals and it sets me above uh, it sets me certainly it sets me above minerals, right? Um, but I'm gonna t- but but nevertheless I'm gonna consider myself to have upgraded myself if I take a bunch of shiny rocks and put them on my person, right? If I'm wearing a bunch of shiny rocks, then I'm better, right? That's what makes me. You can tell how awesome I am because of how many shiny rocks I have. And she's like, look, if that makes sense, then what you're saying is that those shiny rocks. Are better than you, right? That like if they can if they can uh, 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 enhance your your goodness. If, if like the your value is derived from how many shiny rocks you have, then you're saying the shiny rocks are better than you, right? You're you're judging your worth by the number. I mean that's just that's just twisted. It's just backwards, right? Um, shiny rocks rocks are trivial things. They're really low on the scale of creation. Um, uh, the, you know, the human mind is so much more wonderful a thing than any kind of material good that could be. So again, the point that she's making here is just like how backwards this is happening. <laughs> Several of you, a whole bunch of you are baiting me to make a fan or a reference, but I'm not even going to do it. It doesn't even have to be made. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, anyway, so 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 this is... Um, um, uh, this is this is this is a big deal, right? Um, to, uh, uh, to to sort of show that our whole attitude towards wealth just kind of gets things upside down, and the same can be true um, of other things. Here, that she starts off here in, in the section talking about honors again, talking about titles uh, and you know uh, sort of dignities that you receive in society. Since there is no doubt that wicked men are often honored. It is obvious that even the kind of honor which can be achieved by the wicked is not good. And this is even more obviously the case with all the other gifts of fortune, which are freely given to vicious men. It may also be said in this connection that no one doubts the courage of a man in whom he sees the marks of bravery, nor the swiftness of a man who obviously can run fast. Similarly, music makes musicians. Medical skill makes doctors. Rhetoric makes rhetoricians. For each thing does what is proper to its nature, right? So again, that's normally how things work, 
right? If we say you are, uh, you know, you are, you are, you're, you're swift, that's because you can run fast, right? I get normally, you know, the names that we attach to things are directly connected with the observations that we make. But that's not true when we're talking about good and honorable men, right? Because we often call them good, noble, you know, people who are raised to positions and considered noble, considered worthy of reverence when they're not worthy of reverence, right? They're considered, they're, they're, they're given reverence, but it doesn't actually match, right? So it's like calling somebody, uh, you know, uh, an Olympic champion when they're not actually that fast, right? We, it's, it's, it's just, it's inappropriate. Honor bestowed upon wicked men does not make them honorable. On the contrary, it betrays and emphasizes their dishonor. And why does this happen? It happens because you choose to call things by false names, even though the things in question may be quite different, and the things are then found to contradict their names by their effects. Again, like far from, you know, being like, uh, you know, the swiftness and the, uh, and, the, and the running fast or the music and the, and the musician, right? Um, it works almost exactly the opposite with many of these goods of fortune. Therefore, material possessions are not rightly called riches, right? You're not actually wealthy just because you have a whole bunch of rocks or metal, right? Um, worldly power is not true power, and public honor is not true honor. In the end, we reach the same conclusion about all the gifts of fortune. They are not worth striving for. There is nothing in their natures which is good. They are not always possessed by good men, nor do they make those good who possess them. Right? Um, any of those three things would make them valuable. Right? If they were good by nature, they're not good by nature. If they're if if it always correlated one way or the other with goodness, right? If they were always possessed by good men, then that would make them good in a way. Um, and uh, they and if and and even better if they made you good when you had them, right? Then they would be good too. But in none of these ways is it appropriate to say that these things are good. So even calling them the goods of fortune, which we've been doing all this time, right, is a misnomer. It's a false name. It's almost the opposite of the truth. Um, yeah, Carita, yes, exactly. Carita says, I do appreciate that it isn't even up for debate that wicked men are often honored. Yeah, absolutely. That's a given, right? Um, that in fact, uh, most of the people who receive honors are don't deserve it, right? Are wicked. Um, you know, there's no, uh, uh, there's no, there's no beating around the bush on points like that, right? But Carita, wait till you see where he gets with that. I love where we get on that by the end of book three. We're not going to get there tonight, by the way. Promise. Book three is really long. And we're no, we're not getting anywhere close to finishing book three tonight. Um, yeah, yeah. Halstein exactly. Halstein says, "Lady philosophy's arguments don't seem original uh, compared to ancient Greek philosophers." No, not a coincidence at all, Halstein. Absolutely not. She's completely recycling all of these. That's that's the entire point that she's making. Again, this is not designed to be an innovation, right? This is the consolation of philosophy. This is what consolation can traditional philosophy offer, right? Given what we know, right? Given what we have been told by traditional philosophers, um, how can we apply that, right? So it is her putting these things together and applying them in the way that she is uh, that is, is, is what the consolation of philosophy is all about, right? Um, it is in its uh, sort of the practicality of it. 
which not 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 the innovative thinking. It's she's uh, he Boethius, the author, is explicitly not being innovative uh, in those ways, not not thinking of new things. Okay, so we're going to work towards our conclusion about fortune, and the conclusion that she comes to at the end of book two about fortune is a little bit counterintuitive, as she admits, right? As she admits here. But do not think that I am engaged in total war with fortune, for there is a time when that goddess no longer deceives, and then she deserves well of men. So hey, don't say I've got nothing good to say about fortune, right? I'm about to lay a compliment on fortune here, says Lady Philosophy. That is the time when she unmasks herself. Okay, so when she, when she reveals her true nature, that is when she deserves well of men, right? We can give fortune a thumbs up, in that one time, the one time she's not being a lying, deceiving jerk, right? When she unmasks herself, when she shows her face and reveals her true character. But perhaps you do not yet understand what I mean. What I am about to say is so strange that I scarcely know how to make my meaning clear. I am convinced that adverse fortune is more beneficial to men than prosperous fortune. When fortune seems kind and seems to promise happiness, she lies. On the other hand, when she shows herself unstable and changeable, she is truthful. We talk about good fortune and bad fortune all the time, right? Um, those were very popular phrases back then as well, right? So, you know, I'm experiencing good fortune, I'm experiencing bad fortune. Um, it goes without saying, right? Good fortune is when good stuff happens to you. So, you know, you receive a, a, a windfall of money, that's good fortune, right? Um, you know, your, your, uh, uh, your livestock is, uh, uh, you know, struck down by uh, a disease, right? That's bad fortune, right? A tree falls on your house, that's bad fortune, right? Um, we know what's good fortune and what's bad fortune. And she says, you know, Lady Philosophy says, you see the counterintuitive conclusion that we come to when we look at fortune, the nature of fortune, and at the goods of fortune, right? It turns out that bad fortune is good fortune, right? Um, because when fortune is being kind to you, when you are receiving the blessings of fortune, you are being set up. You're going up the side of the wheel of fortune, right? But you're just going to come down. But it's so easy to enjoy that ride, right? And you're like, I'm on top of the... You're up there and you're like, I'm the king of the world, right? And then wham, you're not the king of the world, right? You're just a plaything like everybody else. And when she shows the truth, right, that you're a plaything like anything, like everybody else, that's when she's telling the truth. That's when she's being kind. That's when she's being honest. Um, yes, yes. Good fortune deceives. Adverse fortune teaches. Good fortune enslaves the minds of good men with the beauty of the specious goods which they enjoy. But bad fortune frees them by making them see the fragile nature of happiness. You will notice that good fortune is proud, insecure, ignorant of her true nature. But bad fortune is sober, self-possessed, and prudent through the experience of adversity. Finally, good fortune seduces weak men away from the true good through flattery. But misfortune often turns them around and forcibly leads them back to the true good. It's so easy to think that you've, you've got everything right, when you're blessed by fortune, that everything is great, right, that you're on the right path, that you must be doing everything right, that everything's okay, right? 
really easy to think that um, when everything is uh, uh, when everything is pleasant, right? Um, yeah, yeah, excellent. Uh, uh, for those of you who are quoting the Bible at me, you are completely right. Um, uh, Stephen is quoting about uh, rejoicing in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character uh, uh, and character hope. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, uh, Brian Dimmick is right to remembering uh, the, how difficult it is uh, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Thinking about camels in the eyes of needles. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, you see that... Um, we're, um, we're, we're coming to the same answers, right? Just not uh, through the authority of the Bible itself. Um, okay. Now here's, now, so we're almost, that's pretty much the end of book two, right? That's her conclusion at the end of book two, almost. That's her prose conclusion of book two. Now let's look at the final poem. Of book two, which is a very famous poem. This is one of the most famous poems, uh, uh, very often quoted. Chaucer translated this at length uh, in Troilus and Crusade at a really important and interesting moment in Troilus and Crusade. That the universe carries out its changing process in concord and with stable faith, that the conflicting seeds of things are held by everlasting law, that Phoebus, in his golden chariot, brings in the shining day, that the night, led by Hesperus, is ruled by Phoebe, the moon, that the greedy sea holds back his waves within lawful bounds, for they are not permitted to push back the unsettled earth. All this harmonious order of things is achieved by love, which rules the earth and the seas, and commands the heavens. But if love should slack the reins, all that is now joined in mutual love would wage continual war and strive to tear apart the world which is now sustained in friendly concord by beautiful motion. Love binds together people joined by a sacred bond. Love binds sacred marriages by chaste affections. Love makes the laws which join true friends. Oh, how happy the human race would be if that love which rules the heavens ruled also your souls. Okay, now... At first, I will admit, this um, might sound like a bit of a non sequitur, right? Like, okay, aren't we just talking about fortune? Like good fortune, bad fortune, right? Why are we talking about love and, the, you know, it's love that makes the world go round, right? Um, uh, yes, exactly, Sarah. You're completely right. Uh, uh, Sarah Grant to think of Dante and the, the love that moves the sun and other stars. Yes. Uh, of course, in the medieval conception of the world, it is literally love that makes the world go round. Right? That's absolutely. Uh, the rotation of the spheres uh, is, is caused by love. Um, um, now, see... Tony, that's interesting. Tony says, I can't help but be uh, struck by the references to pagan deities like Apollo in a Christian text. Um, I can understand, but that's a modern quibble. Um, we don't care about that. Um, we talk about the pagan deities all the time. There are two reasons for this. Um, one is that they... Uh, 
medieval Christians were comfortable with talking about the pagan deities um, and for two reasons. One, for talking about them metaphorically was totally cool. Using them as poetic metaphors is fine because you're, they're so steeped in traditional Greco-Roman poetry, you know, like like uh, like the Aeneid and whatnot, that uh, it's still the language that they speak and think in. Um, but what's more, it's fine. They, they're the uh, uh, Tony Apollo is part of the Christian system. Did you know that Apollo is part of the Christian system? Of course he is, right? Uh, who do you think is the planetary intelligence in the sun, right? There's a by the way, there's a spirit in the sun. Right, an angelic being it's called a planetary intelligence. There's one in each of the spheres of the heavens, um, uh, and uh, uh, so like there's 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 one in the moon, right? In the sphere of the moon, there's one in Mercury, there's one in Venus. That's why we call those planets those names. It's not just named; they're not just named after them, right? That's where those spirits live. Because you see, Tony, here's the chief difference between medieval Christian worldview and, and, and modern, especially modern Protestant, but really all modern Christian worldview compared to, you know, uh, about when it, when it comes to the pagan gods, right? From the modern Christian perspective, those pagan gods are simply, those are just false gods, right? Those are just false beliefs. They were wrong. The pagans were wrong about those. Those are made up stories and they're not real. That's not at all how the medievals looked at these stories. The medievals had way too much respect for the Greco-Roman, their Greco-Roman forefathers to say that, right? If the great thinkers and great poets of the ancient days, who were so much greater than we are, right? they were so smart, they knew way more than we did, those ancient people, right? Um, if they, they, they didn't, they said these things because there was something there, right? They told stories, about the gods. They believed in these because they were perceiving that those spirits existed. They do exist. They didn't have the whole picture, which wasn't their fault, right? They didn't have the benefit of revelation. So they didn't know about God, the Father, and they didn't know... Well, I mean, some of them figured it out, like Plato, right? But they didn't know about... Which, which is why medieval Christians had a very hard time believing that Socrates and Plato were damned. Because they figured it out, right? They knew about God. Anyway, so... Um, most of them didn't know about God the Father. Pretty much none of them knew about God the Son uh, and the Incarnation, which, again, not their fault. You know, they were kind of dead before it happened. So, um, uh, but again, the stuff, that they figured, the stuff that they were perceiving were things that were really there. They didn't see how it all fit together, right? Again, they didn't have the whole picture. But what they saw was real. They couldn't fully and accurately explain it. Um, but, um, but they were... Uh, they were perceiving something that was really there. So Rachel, yeah, absolutely, they're created beings. They're angels. Um, they're they're uh, uh, they're angelic beings. And Stephen Cover, absolutely. If you have read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, you are familiar with this concept. He is explicitly using the planetary intelligence idea. Um, his his stories uh, uh, kind of bring that to life in a modern context. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Good. Um, yeah, Jordan, exactly. That's why in Dante, Plato and Socrates uh, 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 and Aristotle are hanging out in, uh, in limbo, right? They're not, they're not in, like, the mainstream hell, right? Um, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Tony, exactly. Tony, uh, this does help explain Tolkien attempting a reconciliation between a unified God and a pantheon of gods. This is why it doesn't... It seems weirder to modern Christians than it seemed to Tolkien, because Tolkien was steeped in this medieval uh, ethos. Like, it's the idea of gods on the... I mean, it's funny because, right, the people who... The modern people who can most easily relate to how the medieval Christians thought about the pagan gods are Tolkien fans, right? It's, it's just it's, it's just like the Valar. Oh, oh, right, okay, just like the Valar, right? That's exactly how they conceived uh, of the pagan deities, right? So if you, uh, if you had had encounters with the Valar uh, or, you know, you were aware of the influence of the Valar but you didn't know anything and you'd never been told about a Luvatar, you might make the same mistake, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Anyway, so yeah, so 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 Tony, that's that's sometimes with the references to uh, uh, like the night being ruled by Phoebe, it might merely be poetry. It might just merely be metaphor, but it doesn't have to be, right? It's all it's all kind of legit, right? It's all fine. Um, anyway, okay, again, on too many tangents like this, which I know are still kind of in my future. Then uh, uh, I'm not going to get through even what I plan to get through tonight. Uh, so anyway, okay, back to love here. Okay, so this is the concluding transitional song. The harmonious order of the universe, which remember Boethius believed in from the beginning when she did her little you know Q and A with Boethius at the end of book one and her you know her diagnostic Q and A. You remember um, he passed this question right. Um, do you think the world is like random and messed up? And he's like, no, 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 world not random and messed up, right? It is, it is orderly and harmonious. And she's like, that's right, that's right, we can work with this, remember? But remember what it was that he didn't get? What he got wrong about that? There were those three questions that he screwed up and that led her to her diagnosis. And she's like, okay, I know just what's wrong with you now, right? But you're, you remember, so he remembered that the world was ordered, but what did he not remember? about the ordering of the world. What did he not remember? Yeah, so, okay, so to recap, he, he didn't get his definition of man right. right? He defined man uh, as a rational mortal animal. And she's like, yeah, and? And he's like, and what? Right, so that was one problem. He forgot who he was. Um, Yes, good. <laughs> cool. Three of you, James, Kate, and Rachel, uh, got all three of them in order. Uh, the second one was, what is the end towards which the world is governed? What's, what's the point of the world? Right? And he couldn't, he didn't know. Right? And third, how is it governed? Okay, you get that it's governed? Good. But how is it governed? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Right? Bing! We have the answer. Here it is. She's given the answer here in poem eight of book two. Love is the answer. Love is how the world is governed, how everything is bound together. If love should slack the reins, all that is now joined in mutual love would wage continual war and strive to tear apart the world, which is now sustained in friendly concord by beautiful motion. Everything would fly apart. Everything is held together in harmony by love. Oh, how happy the human race would be 
if that love which rules the heavens ruled also your souls. Remember Boethius' complaint back in book one? And I'm thinking here, I don't think uh, Kay Ben-Abraham is here with us tonight, um, but uh, Kay, if you if you, uh, you probably watched the recording, um, I remember that Kay said in, 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 in week one, you know, she summarized Boethius' complaint um, when, because remember that Boethius had that song where he was talking about the harmony of the world, right? Everything holds together so well and everything is so regular and harmonious and, and goes together. And then as Kay says, he's like, God, you missed a spot, right? Why is it that humans are the exception to this? Why are people so screwed up collectively, right? Why do you allow injustice and, and bad things all over the place in the human world when everything else works so well, right? Notice, notice. Right? Oh, how happy the human race would be if that love which rules the heavens ruled also your souls. God didn't miss a spot. Why are humans different? Why is human activity, why does it not work the same way that the rest of the world works? Why is it not, why are human uh, things not as uh, much in concord as the rest of the world? because they have turned away from love, because the love which rules the heavens does not rule also their souls, right? Um, what have we been seeing? What have we been seeing in the rest of book two, right? What does rule their souls? Desire. Well, that's good. Desire is love, right? Seeking for something, but what are they seeking? Stuff, right? Shiny rocks. They're, they're focused... Their eyes are not up, their eyes are down and on themselves, right? They're not following reason, which leads you to look up. They're following their passions. They are consumed by folly, thinking they can find happiness in these temporal goods, right? And therefore, the love that rules the heavens doesn't rule them. And therefore, the human race is messed up because... The world is governed by love. And if it is, and when things are governed by love, they work together harmoniously. And that ain't human nature. That ain't human culture, right? Um, yeah. Um, Laura says, is this agape love? Yes, Laura referring to the, the three different Greek words, um, well, four technically different Greek words uh, for love. Um, yes, this is not eros, this is not storge, uh, uh, this is not philia, uh, this is agape um, that we're talking about here. Yes, yes. Um, this is the, yeah, 1 Corinthians 13, exactly, Sharon. Um, James was just quoting that, exactly. Um, we'll come back to love ruling the universe uh, in a little bit. So, okay. Uh, now that we're halfway through class, let's start book three. Those, uh, those of you hardcore uh, Mythgard Academy attendees recognize my, my reference in the subtitle there. Bonus, bonus points if you recognize my reference there. When her song was finished, its sweetness left me wondering and alert, eager to hear more. After a while, I said, you are the perfect comforter for weak spirits. I feel greatly refreshed by the strength of your ideas and the sweetness of your music. In fact, I think I may now be equal to the attacks of fortune. 
and those remedies you spoke of earlier as being rather harsh, I not only do not fear them, I am quite eager to hear them. Philosophy answered, I knew it when I saw you so engrossed, so attentive to what I was saying. I waited for you to achieve this state of mind, or to put it more truly, I led you to it. You will find what I have yet to say bitter to the taste, but once you have digested it, it will seem sweet. Even though you say that you want to hear more, your eagerness would be even greater if you knew where I am about to lead you. Where, said I, to true happiness, to the goal your mind has dreamed of, but your vision has been so clouded by false images, you have not been able to reach it. Um, through the bitter waters, uh, Van Helsing. Um, now I am more sure than ever he must pass through the bitter waters before he reaches the sweet. Uh, speaking of Arthur Holmwood. Uh, sorry, I couldn't, with, with the bitter waters, I couldn't help it. Anyway, sorry. So, um, uh, yeah, Carita Boethius is adorable, right? Uh, Bo- the, the, the Boethius interlocutor in the, in the story is just so cute, right? Um, we're now ready to move on to, to, the, to the, uh, uh, the, 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 the stronger remedies, right? We've, we've, we've laid the foundations now. He's eager to get to the next level, right? And the next level is we're going to talk about true happiness, right? This is the real thing. So let's, let's do it. The man who wants to this is the poem, right? The man who wants to sow a fertile field must first clear the ground of brush, then cut out the ferns and brambles with his sharp hook, so that the new grain may grow abundantly. Honey is sweeter to the taste if the mouth has first tried bitter flavors. Stars shine more brightly after notice has stopped his rainy blasts. Only after Hesperus has driven away the darkness does the day drive forward his splendid horses. Just so, by recognizing false goods, you begin to escape the burden of their influence. Then afterwards, true goods may gain possession of your spirit. Right, okay, so again, she had to do that preliminary work in book two. Book two was, so book one was diagnosis, book two was clearing the ground, right? We're not yet ready to plant the real seeds yet, right? First, we've got to clear away the rubbish. And uh, what gets cleared away is that fixation with false goods. As long as Boethius is saying, like, but why did my stuff all get taken away? And it wasn't fair, right? Which, again, like, easy for me to mock that, right? But, and it's tr- again, it's true of all things, right? It's true of all worldly goods. Even remember stuff like health, right? This is, the, this is you know, she's talking about uh, everything, you know, from uh, from I lost my job to I got a cancer diagnosis, right? All of that stuff is included in her uh, uh, assessment of the goods of fortune, of worldly goods. Is it a thing in the gift of fortune? Is it a thing that can shift around on you, right? Health is certainly one of those things that can shift around on you, right? And, an, and a great example of one of those things that we feel entitled to when we have it, right? Which deceives us into a false sense of security, as if it's the natural order of things that we should be able to count on. And fortune would say, oh no, that's one of the things in my gift too, right? Um, And uh, I can take that away anytime I want to. Um, Anyway, so now let's, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's sow the fertile field. Remember that same imagery that she had from way back in prose one, in book one, right? When she talked about the, 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 the barren thorns of, passion, of the passions uh, compared to the, the fertile grain of reason, right? It's time to, 
it's time to grow the fertile reason here. Okay, so what is, in fact, the, uh, um, what is the, the true good? Okay, mortal men laboriously pursue many different interests along many different paths, but all strive to reach the same goal of happiness. Now, the good is defined as that which, once it is attained, relieves man of all further desires. So the supreme, this is the supreme good and contains within itself all other lesser goods. If it lacked anything at all, it could not be the highest good because something would be missing and this could still be desired, right? So again, she, remember that she's, she's thinking in, in, in logical terms here, right? Logically speaking, the highest good has to be that, that than which there is nothing greater, right? You can't say, I am perfectly happy if you still want anything, right? It's not about being content, right? Contentment isn't true happiness. It's not, the, at least it's not the same thing, right? So if you're, if you're like, well, I could kind of, I would kind of like this, but I'm all right without it, right? That's not true happiness. That's not what she's talking about, right? True happiness, the supreme good, is to be in possession of, to be absolutely satisfied. Every desire perfectly satisfied so that there is nothing left to desire, right? You have the fruition and the fulfillment of all things. Okay, because if there's anything left that you want, then you're not perfectly satisfied, right? Then, then there's still desire. You haven't achieved the supreme good. Clearly then, perfect happiness is the perfect state in which all goods are possessed, And as I said, all men try by various means to attain this state of happiness. For there is naturally implanted in the minds of men the desire for the true good, even though foolish error draws them towards false goals. Okay, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody is seeking happiness. Um, Everybody everybody has desires, and they're attempting to satisfy those desires, right? Right? Um, and of course, what is it that would satisfy their desires? The supreme good would satisfy their desires, right? This, there's, there's, if, if, they, if all of their desires were satisfied, they would have the supreme good. That's what, so in that sense, this is what everybody is going for. Everybody wants to get to the point where all of their desires are satisfied, where they have nothing left uh, even to long for. And notice she says, the desire for the true good is there by nature. It is naturally implanted in the minds of men. It's how we're wired, she says. We'll come back to that later on. She's going to come back to this point, and when she does, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, So, okay, so why do we seek worldly goods? Why do we focus on getting rich? Why do we focus on, you know, earning the respect of others, you know, getting titles and, 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 and stuff? Why do we, you know, why do we get extra degrees, right? You know, why do we, uh, why do we try to be famous, um, why do we do this? Well, some men, believing that the highest good is to have everything, exert themselves to become very rich. Others think that the highest good is to be found in the highest honors, and so they try to gain the esteem of their fellow citizens by acquiring various honors. Still others equate the highest good with the greatest personal power. Some men want to be rulers, or at least to associate themselves closely with those in power. Then there are those for whom fame seems the highest good, and they labor to spread the glory of their names either in war or in in practicing the arts of peace. Others measure the good in terms of gaiety and enjoyment. They think that the greatest happiness is found in pleasure. 
Finally, there are those who interchange the causes and results of these false goods. Some desire riches in order to get power and pleasure. Some desire power in order to get money or fame. All this shows clearly that all men seek happiness. For whatever anyone desires beyond all else, he regards as the highest good. And, since we have defined the highest good as happiness, everyone thinks that the condition which he wants more than anything else must constitute happiness. Right. So, okay, so again, the point is, again, everybody wants to be happy. Right? Everybody is seeking the satisfaction of their desires. Everybody agrees on that. What do people disagree on? People disagree on what brings it and what is the best route to get there, right? Um, uh, and, and they have different points of view on this, right? Some people believe that wealth is the ticket, right? If you're wealthy, that'll make you really happy. If you're powerful, that'll make you really happy, right? So why is she doing the goods of fortune? Didn't we dismiss the goods of fortune? Didn't we deal with the goods of fortune already and show that they're not really goods? Yeah, we did. So why is she going back there? Remember last time I talked about this. Last time I said, if you felt like she was being a little too casually dismissal of the goods of fortune, right? Money, nah, it's not really any good at all, right? No point in money. Forget about money, right? If that seemed a little flippant, not flippant maybe, but unsatisfying, right? That she wasn't really giving it a fair shake. I said, hang on, she's going to come back to it in book three, right? This is the first time she comes back to it. Um, and when she comes back to it here, it sounds, what she's saying is very similar to what she said in book two. She's not contradicting what she said in book two, but the emphasis is a little bit different, right? Before the point was wealth isn't the good, right? You know, wealth isn't, uh, uh, isn't the goal. Um, the goal, she concludes, right? The conclusion with which she begins book three, the goal is happiness, right? So why do we seek Money, why do we seek wealth? Not actually as an end in itself. We seek it as a means to get happiness because we believe it's going to make us happy. It's going to bring us happiness, right? Um, so now she's not focusing on like the nature of those goods in themselves. Now she's focusing on them as a route to happiness, given that we all seek happiness. Will this get us there? Will these get us there? Any of these, right? Um... So that's where she's. Uh, um, that's where she's. Uh, she's. She's starting off here. Um, so what is our current human state? We fatten as hay that drunk is as a moose. A drunken man, what well he hath an hoose, but he not which the reeked way is thither. And to a drunken man the way is slither. And certes, in this world so far and way, we sake and fast after felicity, but we gone wrong full often truly. Uh, that's uh, Chaucer's paraphrase of this exact passage from Boethius uh, in The Knight's Tale. Uh, uh, sorry, I couldn't resist because uh, Chaucer's all over Boethius. And whenever I come to this passage of Boethius, I always hear the Knight's Tale version in my head. We fatten as hay that drunk is as a moose. Uh, dr- that's uh, drunk as a mouse, Jennifer. I don't know why mice are held up here as the paragons of drunkenness exactly. Um, I have no explanation <laughs> for why the mouse is chosen as an illustration. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, I know, Karita, it seems like a slander, but I can't, I, can't, I can't explain. All I can say is it must have made sense 
in some way in the Middle Ages. And all I can say is if you think about it, we have a lot of similar sayings that we couldn't explain and don't make a whole lot of sense either. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, actually, I'll come back to this. But OK, sorry, sorry. Well, let's uh, look at the, uh, the modern English translation. But let me return now to the goals men set for themselves. In spite of its hazy memory, the human soul seeks to return to its true good. But like the drunken man who cannot find his way home, the soul no longer knows what its good is. Should we consider those men mistaken who try to have everything? So now, hang on a second. The human soul seeks to return to its true good, but like the drunken man who cannot find his way home, the soul no longer knows what its good is. Um, this is deservedly an, an, an extremely popular um, illustration, a very influential illustration. I already showed you uh, Chaucer's use of that and translation of it. Yeah, good, Tony. It is like drunk as a skunk. At least that rhymes. It's true. Um, uh, we don't have any reasons to suspect skunks of, of uh, inebriation either. Um, Chaucer expands on this image a little bit, right? And I think that Chaucer's expansion is exactly what Boethius is getting at, right? In what way are humans, is the human soul like a drunk guy, right? A drunk man, what well, he knows well, he what well, he hath an hoose, right? You know, so there's the drunk guy going down the street, and he's like, okay, I know I have a house. I just don't remember how to get there, right? Um, and he's trying to find his This happened to me once. No, I wasn't the drunk guy, right? But there was a day in college. Um, I lived in this dorm, which had four floors, and all the floors, it was like it was this like concrete bunker, and they were all exactly identical, like the stairwell and the doors and the hallways all looked exactly the same. And so there was this one night, I'm sitting in my room, minding my own business, being my, my virtuous self. I was doubtless studying very hard at the time, and this uh, quite tipsy uh, uh, young gentleman uh, is suddenly standing in my door, and he's looking around, and he says... What the heck did you do to my room? <laughs> I'm like, um, fourth floor. One more up, my friend. You took a wrong turn, right? And and I, I hadn't read Boethius yet at the time, or I would have found it even funnier. Um, but that's that's exactly that's exactly it, right? Um, uh, uh, he, he not uh, not means he what not. He doesn't know. But he not which the great way is thither. And to a drunken man, the way is slither, right? I mean, you can, it's, it's hard to find the right way uh, to your house. So you know what you're, you know, you have a house. You have a vague idea of what it looks like. You just keep turning down the wrong road, right? And you're like, this isn't my house, right? Or worse, you walk in and you think it is your house, right? Because it kind of looks like your house. Um, that's exactly what the comparison uh, that Boethius is making. It's, you know, it's, as Chaucer says, and Certes, in this world, so far and way. This is exactly how we go on in this world. We seek and fast after felicite, but we gone wrong for often, truly. Um, we, 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 we seek happiness, felicity. Notice the word that he's, remember Tom's comment on uh, 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 the felicity versus cheerfulness, right? Um, we seek felicity, right? We seek happiness, um, but we gone wrong full often, truly. Yeah, truly, Chaucer, you're absolutely right about that. Um, uh, so thanks for that gloss there, Jeff. Uh, okay, should we consider those men mistaken who try to have everything? All right, those people who seek after wealth? Not at all. 
For nothing can so surely make a man happy as being in full possession of all good things. The impulse which drives people to accumulate stuff is a right impulse. Sufficient in himself and needing no one else. Right? If that could be true, if you could become, if you could have everything so that you were sufficient and you needed nothing, that's true happiness, right? And so, you know, wealth looks kind of like that. It looks at least as much like the possession of true happiness as my dorm room looked like that other dude's dorm room, right? Um, nor are they mista- mistaken to think that the best men are, worthy, are most worthy of honor. For nothing which nearly all men aspire to achieve can be despised as vile. Power, too, must be considered a good thing, for it would be ridiculous to regard as trivial an asset which can accomplish more than anything else. Right? I mean, if, if you have the capability to, perf- to do the things that you want to do, right, that's the satisfaction of desire. Right? So I'm sure, yeah, that's awesome. That would be great. Um, and what a fame. Should we be scornful of it? Surely we must admit that great excellence always carries with it great fame. Finally, it goes without saying that happiness excludes sadness and anguish, that it implies freedom from grief and misery, since even in small things we desire whatever brings delight and enjoyment. In other words, the impulse that leads us to seek after any of the goods of fortune is a good impulse, right? Is a normal impulse, is a, is a, is a, is the same impulse. It is, is the impulse that leads us to true happiness, right? To desire true happiness. We desire these things because they all look like happiness. They all have things in common with happiness. And it's easy in our own kind of clouded and inebriated state to mistake it for happiness. This road that we've gone down, it's the wrong road. It's not going to lead us home. But darn it if it doesn't look just like our street when we've had a few too many, right? That's exactly the human state, as Boethius describes it here, as as Lady Philosophy describes it. These, then, are the things which men desire to have. Riches, high rank, administrative authority, glory and pleasure, because they believe that these things will give them a good standard of living, honor, power, fame, and joy. And whatever men strive for in so many ways must be the good. It is easy to show how strong and natural this striving is. Because in spite of the variety and difference of opinion, still all men agree in loving and pursuing the goal of good. So, are the goods of fortune totally horrible? No, they're not totally horrible, in fact. right? They do have something in common with the good, or else we wouldn't mistake them for it. right? We wouldn't even go down those wrong roads if they didn't look so much like the good, if they didn't have things in common with the good. Um, so again, this is why, again, as I said before, if you if you thought that she was too dismissive first, she's gonna, she comes back and and, uh, and and revisits that briefly here, right? No, they're not completely vile. They're not totally despicable, right? They're not what we thought we were, you know, what we thought they were, that is to say, right? They're not the end. They're not the goal. And if you think of them as the goal and then you look at them carefully, you'll see, as we saw in book two, no, that's not the end, Right? But they do look like it, right? Um, And then we get poem two. Poem two, one of the other most influential poems in this entire book. And another poem which Chaucer did, almost uh, line by line, translation of in Canterbury Tales. 
Now I will show you in graceful song, accompanied by pliant strings, how mighty nature guides the reins of all things, how she providently governs the immense world by her laws, how she controls all things, binding them with unbreakable bonds. Now, our, our bells should be going off, right? She's saying, I'm going to tell you. In this poem, I'm going to tell you um, uh, the answer, one of the answers that you got wrong. Right? We already saw it at the end of book two, right? What how is the universe governed? By love, right? And now she says, I'm gonna show you how nature guides the reins of all things. Right? So what does that mean in practice? Okay, we say love makes the world go around. Okay, yeah, but how? Right? What's the mechanism by which nature makes this happen? Here it is. The Carthaginian lions endure their fair chains, are fed by hand, and fear the beatings they get from their masters. So these are tame lions, right? But if blood should smear their fierce mouths, their sluggish spirits revive, and with a roar they revert to their original nature. They shake off their chains and turn their mad fury on their masters, tearing them with bloody teeth. When the chattering bird, who sings in the high branches, is shut up in a narrow cage, she is not changed by the lavish care of the person who feeds her with sweet drink and tasty food. If she can escape from the cramped cage and see the cool shade of the wood, she will scatter the artificial food and fly with yearning to the trees where she will make the forest ring with her sweet voice. A treetop, bent down by heavy pressure, will bow its head to the ground, but if the pressure is released, the tree looks back to heaven again. Phoebus sets at night beneath the Hesperian waves, but returning again along his secret path, he drives his chariot to the place where it always rises. Thus all things seek again their proper courses and rejoice when they return to them. That's how nature guides the reins of all things. Make sense? Uh, let me... Let me... Uh, let me explain... <laughs> Carita, exactly. Carita says, so Chaucer is like the rock cover of, of the Constellation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the, the, the works of Chaucer uh, are like, uh, are, are like the, 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 the rock cover of Constellation. That's, that's exactly it. He did a boring cover, too. He did a prose translation in, in Middle English of the Constellation of Philosophy, um, which is still fun, but it's, it's, it's very straight. It's not, it's not funny. Um, uh, at least not often funny. But, uh, yeah. Okay, how does this work then? What is, what is she saying? This, what, what Lady Philosophy is describing in this poem was a very basic belief of the Middle Ages. Um, and you know why it was a very basic belief of the Middle Ages? Because Lady Philosophy explained it here. It's based on this as much as anything else. Um, enormously, enormously influential for the entire medieval worldview. Love makes things happen. Everything wants to go home. That's the, that's the description of the world. So let's see. I have a paper clip, right? You can see this work, right? You, you can empirically prove this principle that she's describing all over the place. She gives three examples, right? Four, really, if you count the rising and setting, the setting and rising of the sun, right? Um, but we can, uh, uh, we can, we can prove this, right? Uh, you can see it all the time. Uh, so I have a paper clip here. What is uh, what is this paper clip made of? Huh? 
minerals, right? It's made of metal, right? Where does metal want to be? What is the desire of this metal? This metal has a desire, right? It has a love. What is its love? What does it love? What does this paperclip love? You can tell. How can you tell? You can tell by what it does on its own, right? If you leave it to itself, what does it do? That's how you can tell what it loves, what it desires, right? So what does it desire? To go down, right? You can tell. As often as you do it, it'll do the same thing. You keep asking it the same question. Hey, paperclip, what do you want? Oh, you want to be, you really want to be down at the table, right? Wow, it's just determined to go there, right? You just, you have to physically hold it, right? If you let it go for just a second, down it goes, right? See, that's, it wants to be home. It wants to be where it's supposed to be. Um, it's the desire of the paperclip, right? Um, now, we say in the modern world that it's obeying the law of gravity, right? And I've even heard people scoff. If, you know, if, if you say to somebody, the paperclip falls because it wants to be back at the earth. People will be like, that's not true, right? What really happens is that the paperclip is just obeying the law of gravity. Now think about those two statements, right? Those are exactly equally metaphorical statements, right? Uh, yes, we're saying that the, the paperclip has a desire, right? Um, but is that actually, does that make less sense? Is that less accurate in some way than saying that it's obeying a law, right? Like it's, it's got citizenship and it's choosing like, but apparently paperclips never practice, you know, civil disobedience, I guess, against the law of gravity, right? Um, so we, 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 we project slavish obedience to a law, which doesn't make sense, by the way, because we don't really believe in universal laws of that kind anymore, you know, but we still talk that way, right? Um, however, the medieval system does make sense, and it does hold together. It says everything wants... because They can explain why. If you say... If I say to a modern person, why does the paperclip obey the law of gravity, right? Again, like, what's its motivation? What will happen to it? Will it get in trouble if it doesn't obey the law, right? What is the punishment for disobeying the law of gravity for the paperclip, right? You can't explain that. It doesn't make sense. The whole metaphor falls apart as soon as you think about it, right? But the medieval one doesn't, right? Um, Why does the paperclip fall? Because it wants to be down, right? Because it wants to go to its home, to the earth. Why? Because everything wants to go. Everything has a place where it belongs. And it wants to be there. Everything does. And you can see everything obeys this law. Everything obeys that, that. Everything, everything follows that pattern. And again, if, so if I ask why, it's like well, you can see, right? I can't prove that it's like choosing to obey, but I can prove that it has a desire to be down because it moves, right? And Aristotle will tell you if something moves, it's because it has a desire to move. Right? Uh, so yeah, there it goes again. Right? It keeps doing it. Um, exactly. Exactly. Um, everything wants to be home. So you can tell where everything's home is. Right? Just look where it wants to be. Right? You can tell, for instance, that uh, the home of air is above the water. Right? All you have to do is just release water under the, or air under the water, right? What does it do? 
rises immediately, right? Wants to be home. Again, this is empirically provable all the heck over the place, right? That's what she is describing in this poem, right? Everything has its nature, has, is, is, is the way it is. Right? It, wants to be, it wants to be true to the nature that it's been given. You can twist it out of place. Right? I can take this paper clip and I can, I, I can artificially lift it up and hold it up in the air. And there's air above it and around it. Right? And it doesn't like it. Right? I've got to force it. But as soon as I let it go, it's going to fall. Same thing with the tree that you bend over. Right? It wants to be upright and you're forcing it down. You can do that. Right? But you let it go and whack, it's going to fly back up again. Right? Um, you, can, you, can, you can tame a lion... You know, you can you can you can keep a lion on a chain, but you know, once it tastes blood in its mouth, it's gonna it's gonna go right. It's it's lion nature is gonna reassert itself, right? You can have a bird, you can tame the bird, you can be you can feed the bird. The bird can look like it's super happy in its cage, but you leave that cage door open, out it's gonna go, right? Because it wants to be home. It wants to be in the woods. Everything pursues its own nature. Okay, so that is. This, so this is the answer to the question. How is the world governed? Love. Everything has a desire. Everything wants to be in its natural place. That is how the world is governed. That is how harmony is maintained. That is why the world is orderly. And all of those things that Boethius observed in his natural philosophy, it's why those things are true. So, how does this help? How does this apply to the human situation? Right? That, of course, is what we're going to go on uh, to see. Um, Okay, let's keep going. You two, who are creatures of Earth, dream of your origin. However weak the vision of your dream may be, you have some vague idea of that goal of true happiness towards which you gaze. Right? That desire for true happiness, the fact that all humans have that desire for true happiness right, have this desire that needs to be satisfied. That proves, it shows, that's how we're made. That's who we are, right? Like the ferocity of the lion, like the freedom of the bird in the woods, like the uprightness of the tree, right? Uh, Like the the being down at the earth of the paperclip, right? That's how we are. The, The desire for true happiness is us asserting our natures. It's how we are. It's who we are. Nature leads you toward true good, but manifold error turns you away from it. So your error, your mistake, that drunkenness, that clouded mind that we have is like the hand holding up the paperclip, right? So when we're like a drunk man, when we're turning down the wrong path, when we're going after wealth or we're going after pleasure uh, because we mistake it for true happiness, we're, we're trying to get home. But we're, uh, you know, we're, we're showing that we, we, we have that inclination to follow our natures. Um, we're, just not, we're just not succeeding, right? Manifold error turns you away from it. Consider for a moment whether the things men think can give them happiness really bring them to the goal which nature planned for them. If money or honor or other goods of that kind really provide something which seems completely and perfectly good, then I too will admit that men can be happy by possessing them. But if they not only cannot deliver what they promise but are found to be gravely flawed in themselves, it is obvious that they have only the false appearance of happiness. Right? So again, she's granted they, they're like the real good. They resemble the true good. But she's asserted that they're not the real good. She's like, okay, but let, let's, let's be fair. Right? 
Let's review. Can they get us towards real happiness? Can they get us, can they provide something which seems completely and perfectly good? So, quick review. How about wealth? Can wealth do it? Is when she's going back and forth with, uh, with, uh, with Boethius here. Oh, um, sorry, hang on. A couple, couple questions. Some of you are mocking me for the, the torment that I'm uh, afflicting to the paperclip. I apologize. I'll stop tormenting the paperclip. Um, uh, but, uh, <laughs> sorry, Patricia, you're totally right. I shouldn't taunt the paperclip like that. Um, uh, Jennifer says, do we love the ground too? Uh, we seek it pretty fast when we fall off stuff. Absolutely, Jennifer. Our bodies, yeah. Because what are our bodies made out of? Dirt, right? Absolutely. Our physical bodies seek the ground, just like everything else, right? Remember, our, 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 um, our being is sort of cumulative. We have some things in common with rocks, right? With minerals. And the fact that our bodies fall to the ground when we, when we tumble off cliffs shows you, right? Uh, yep, absolutely. We have that in common with rocks. Our bodies, too, seek the earth because our bodies are from the earth. It, 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 that proves that our bodies are from the earth, right? We don't need, uh, you know, uh, Genesis to tell us that we were made from the dust, right? Uh, that from dust we came and to dust we, we shall return, as we're told in the burial service. We don't need to be reminded of that. We can observe that empirically, right? Absolutely. But, of course, there's more uh, to the human than just our physical bodies, right? Our rational souls, are what Lady Philosophy is talking about here, right? Um, yeah, good. James is just quoting the... James Oakley was just quoting the We Are Dust Into Dust We Shall Return. Absolutely. Um, uh, yes, Tony, you're absolutely right um, to be reminded of Plato's idea um, that morality comes from a memory of a perfect world that we came from. Yes, this idea of forgetting the forgetfulness like the drunken nature of humanity... Um, that's straight out of Plato. Absolutely it is, right? That we all, our souls know all things, right? But when we're born, we forget. And then over the course of our lives, we remember gradually. Um, that is absolutely a, um, a platonic idea. Um, yeah, great, great. Um, uh, good, okay, all right. Let's keep going. Um, Sorry, wealth. Okay, that's right. I'm remembering where, where we are now. First then, since you recently were very rich, let me ask uh, whether or not you were ever worried in spite of your abundant wealth. Yes, I answered. I cannot recall a time when my mind was entirely free from worry. And wasn't it because you wanted something you did not have or had something you didn't want? That is true, I answered. You wanted this or didn't want that? Yes. Then doesn't everyone lack something that he wants? Yes, he does, I replied. And isn't the man who lacks something less than wholly self-sufficient? That is true. And even you at the peak of your wealth felt this insufficiency? Of course, I agreed. Then wealth cannot give a man everything and make him entirely self-sufficient, even though this is what money seems to promise. But I think it most important to observe that there is nothing in the nature of wealth to prevent its being taken from those who have it. Right? So, uh, money can't bring you... True, it, it, it cannot be a path to true happiness, right? It is true that money looks like happiness because perfect self-sufficiency, to have everything you need, remember? That's like true happiness, right? Um, but of course, as we recall from book two, that's never the state of the rich person. 
Nobody is ever so rich that they're like, and I don't need a single thing, right? I have absolutely everything I want in all ways, and I am perfectly secure. No, because at the even if you can't think of anything else that you need, um, which is probably not true, uh, you uh, you still can lose it, right? So you're not so in order to be totally self sufficient. If it's taken away, if it can be taken away from you, you can't be perfectly self sufficient, right? So. Um, so yeah, yeah. So that's um, it's it does not succeed in doing what it claims to do. So again, it looks like uh, uh, true happiness, but it's not a path to true happiness. How about honors, titles, respect? To prove further that true honor cannot be attained through these specious dignities, think what would happen if a man who had been many times consul should go to some uncivilized foreign countries. Would the honors which he held at home make him worthy of respect in those places? But if veneration were a natural part of public honors, it would certainly be given in every nation, just as fire always gives heat wherever it is found in the world. But because popular respect is not a natural consequence of public office, but merely something which depends on untrustworthy public opinion, it vanishes when a man finds himself among those who do not regard his position in his home country as a special dignity. Right? You can it's you can tell that honors, you know, that titles and that kind of respect isn't a true good, doesn't give the good that it claims to give, because it's relative. It's limited, right? And go to a foreign country and they're not gonna recognize you, right? Um Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so again, same thing. Wealth promises self-sufficiency. Does it give it? No, doesn't give real self-sufficiency, right? Honors promise you respect, that you will have the respect of people. Except will you? No, not everybody, right? Um, not, even, uh, not even most people, in fact. How about power, right? What then is the nature of this power which cannot rid a man of gnawing anxieties nor save him from fear? Those who brag of their power want to live in security, but cannot. Do you consider a person powerful, whom you see unable to have what he wants? Do you think a person mighty, who is always surrounded by bodyguards, or who is more afraid than those whom he intimidates, who puts himself in the hands of his servants in order to seem powerful? Right? If you need a bodyguard, you're not powerful. You're weak. Right? You're 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 like advertising your weakness. Right? Power looks like the good because it promises security, right? And the ability to satisfy all of your desires. But it doesn't deliver that. Does it deliver? No, it fails to deliver uh, real security, right? If anything, it makes you less secure and, and you're always under threat and having to hire security firms to protect you. How about pleasure? What now shall I say about bodily pleasures? The appetite for them is full of worry, and the fulfillment full of remorse. What dreadful disease and intolerable sorrow the fruits of wickedness they bring to the bodies of those who enjoy them. What pleasure there may be in these appetites I do not know, but they end in misery as anyone knows who is willing to recall his own lusts. Right? It's like, like do we need to even talk about pleasure? Right? Pleasure seems awesome. Right? But, um, you know, being like embracing that as the ultimate good... That's not going to get anybody anywhere, right? Uh, the appetite is full of worry, the fulfillment full of remorse. I think we've all been there, right, in both of those places um, uh, with lots of different kinds of pleasure. Pleasure promises joy, right? But it doesn't deliver. 
either. Okay, so again, these these worldly goods are not they're not um, again they're not completely horrible here, but they're they don't deliver on what they promise to do. So, conclusion: there is no doubt, therefore, that these are the wrong roads to happiness. They cannot take anyone to the destination which they promise. Let me briefly show you the evils within them. If you try to accumulate money, you must deprive someone else of it. If you want to cover yourself with honors, you will become indebted to those who can bestow them. And by wishing to outdo others in honor, you will humiliate yourself by begging. She goes on and describes more, like basically how you can never have, you know, each of these things individually um, won't get you there, right? Lest you think, but hang on a second, what if you get them all? Right? What if you have pleasure and wealth and power and titles and, and fame? Right? Then maybe for the complete package, you'd have true happiness. And she's like, look, it doesn't even work that way. Right? I mean, if you try to go for one, you're going to end up sacrificing most. I mean, it's not really even possible to get all of those things together. All of these arguments can be summed up in the truth that these limited goods, which cannot achieve what they promise and are not perfect in embracing all that is good, are not man's path to happiness nor can they make him happy in themselves. This is in your house, man, right? This is not your dorm room. Uh, it looks like your dorm room, but you don't live here, right? So don't just think that I put up all those Lord of the Rings posters in your room for some reason. Then, philosophy went on, it must be granted that although the names of sufficiency, power, fame, reverence, and joy are different, in substance, all are one and the same thing. So she's just gone on to show how you can't, re- you can't truly have any one of these things without all of the others, right? True happiness embraces all of these things simultaneously um, because you can't be really self-sufficient unless you have real power, like the real ability to affect the things that you want, right? Uh, and these things will come with fame and reference and joy naturally, right? So... Uh, all of these things are really one. True happiness contains all of those goods which the worldly goods claim to give you separately, right? Um, human depravity, then, she says, has broken into fragments that which is by nature one and simple. Men try to grasp part of a thing which has no parts and so get neither the part which does not exist nor the whole which they do not seek, right? So... They're not going for the whole thing. They seek happiness, but it's not happiness they're pursuing. Instead, they latch on to a piece of happiness, but happiness is indivisible, right? True happiness, that perfect satisfaction. You can't split it up, right? You can't get self-sufficiency without power, right? You can try, but it's not going to work, right? Um, and that's the problem. That's, that, that's wherein <clears throat> the folly of human, the human mind lies, right? That's what happens when we're drunk, right? is we just latch on to the one piece that we see in front of us uh, or that we think that we see and we end up getting none of it. We don't even get that one piece, right? The man who seeks wealth in order to avoid poverty is not interested in power. He would rather be obscure and weak and will even deprive himself of many natural pleasures so that he won't lose the money he has collected. But such a man does not even acquire sufficiency. He is powerless, plagued by trouble, held in contempt and hidden in obscurity. Similarly, the man who seeks only power wastes his money, scorns pleasures and honors that carry with him no power, and thinks nothing of fame. But see how much he is missing. 
Sometimes he is without the necessities of life. He's plagued by anxieties. And when he cannot overcome them, he loses what he wants most. He ceases to be powerful. Honors, fame, and pleasure can be shown to be equally defective, for each is connected with the others, and whoever seeks one without the others cannot even get the one he wants. It's all tied together. Yes, James, it is kind of like her torn robes. Yes, tearing off a little piece of Lady Philosophy's robe uh, is uh, is not going to do you any good. You're not going to get any of that stuff here. Um, yeah. Rachel says, is depravity the same as error here? Uh, I think in a sense, yes. I think that she's getting at the same kind of thing here when she's talking about that. Yeah. Um, good. Yeah, Stephen Cover was thinking the same thing about Lady Philosophy's torn robe. Yeah. Okay, so everybody wants happiness. This is why we're failing. This is why nobody gets there, and this is certainly why the goods of fortune aren't the path there. Right. Now, you have grasped the nature of false happiness and its causes. Now turn your mind's eye in the opposite direction, and there you will see the true happiness which I promise to show you. So remember, she's, we've cleared away the, the brush, right? Time to plant the seeds. But this is clear even to a blind man, I said. And you revealed it a little while ago when you tried to explain the causes of false happiness. For unless I am mistaken, true and perfect happiness is that which makes a man self-sufficient, powerful, worthy of reverence and renown, and joyful. And to show that I have understood you, I acknowledge that whatever can truly provide any one of these must be true and perfect happiness, since all are one and the same. O my scholar, philosophy answered, your observation is a happy one if you add just one thing. What is that? I asked. Do you imagine that there is any mortal or frail thing which can bring about a condition of this kind? Right? What is true happiness? Again, notice by studying worldly goods, right? by looking carefully at, world, at these things which don't satisfy, these things which cannot bring us happiness, Lady Philosophy has constructed a picture of what happiness looks like. Right? We know that wealth and power and, and fame and all these things can't satisfy us and can't make us perfectly happy. But they are like the things that, that make us happy, we can tell, because we pursue them. So by looking at them all, we can build a picture of what that true happiness must really look like. Right? True and perfect happiness is that which makes a man self-sufficient, powerful, worthy of reverence, and renowned and joyful. Right? All at once. Okay, great. So where do we find it? Answer, not on earth, right? You're not going to find that on earth. Um, no mortal and frail thing is going to bring about a condition of this kind, right? Um, tune in next time. And we're done early again. 25 slides in less than two hours. How about that? Um, so, and I didn't knock over my phone. I can't believe it. Uh, so there we are. It has been truly a felicitous evening, right? James Oakley is saying 25 for 25 slides is true and perfect happiness, right? Um, yeah, so um, uh, so yeah, we did. Yeah, no, Jennifer, we did the slides from last time too. We're good. We did it all. We finished book two and then we got just to just where I wanted to get in book three. So next time we're going to look at 
true happiness, right? We're gonna we're, we're shifting from looking down to looking up. Don't forget the stuff about nature and human nature, right? Don't forget the paperclip, which I won't torment Patricia by picking up again, right? Um, uh, remember about human nature and where we want, and that th- all things want to go to where their true home is, right? And it will all make sense. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. So reread book three. We're going to get through the... Uh, my. I'm hoping to get through the end of book three next time. Next week is our, our bonus class that I scheduled in after the first three because I knew we wouldn't get through the end of book three today. I'm hoping we can get through the end of book three so we can carry on to book four um, and then uh, get to... Uh, get you know so that so that i'm hoping still to be able to take some extra questions and stuff at the end uh, of class in week seven we'll see uh we'll see we'll see how things go thanks everybody for joining me uh and uh and following along this has been this has been great fun no don't read into book four no point we're totally not going into book four read through the end of book so reread book three read through the end of book three that's where we'll that's the goal is to get to to the end of book three next time so thanks everybody, uh, and I will um, I will see you guys next week. I should be home. What's next week? Yes, I should be home next Wednesday. Uh, so that'll be good. Uh, and then uh, uh, yeah, no, I'll be home after that for every Wednesday. But of course, then is Myth Mood right after that. Uh, but I'll be back in time for the following Wednesday. So there we go. So thanks everybody, and I will see you guys soon. Good night. <laughs>